Good morning, everybody. You know, sitting through the, the first service, and sometimes I, I sit through the first service, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in awe, and sometimes I just come into the second service, and I'm in awe, and, and today's one of those days where it was both. It was just so good. I really wish you were here for the 9-15, um, but I just want you to know that this is going to be an amazing time. The reason why I wish you were here for the 9-15 is because you can just have more time soaking up all of this, because this is so good. Um, this morning, what we're going to talk about in the standalone message, we're going to talk about how worship matters. We're going to talk about how worship matters because worship is something that we all do. I want to ask you this question just to begin the conversation before we get into the Bible. And we're ultimately going to land in two places. We're going to not land there at once like you're already like, how are we going to do that? We're going to go to one place and at the end, we're going to find something incredibly practical as we flesh out the scripture, at the end, we're going to go actually into the New Testament, into the Gospel of Matthew, and see something that is so helpful in helping us to understand this idea of worship. I want to ask you this question, though. When is the last time you've been awed by God? When is the last time you've had a wow moment with God? When is the last time that you have, you have been in a place of worship, whether by yourself or in a community, with a community of faith, where you've been like, wow? Like you just knew that God showed up. Is that like your life when you come to gather on Sunday mornings? Or is it more like, well, this is just what we do and I get up and, and, and sometimes I'm in the right attitude, I have the right heart attitude and sometimes my mood cooperates with God. Or when you come into this place, do you come in ready to be wowed by God? I mean, I know how life works. I know that, that it's difficult. I understand that we all have different Things that go on every single Saturday and Friday and Monday through Friday and then Sunday morning and then you come, you know, you come ready for church or not ready for church and there's been so many things that's happened. But what we're going to see today ultimately is how worship is a lifestyle and worship is affected. Our corporate worship is affected by how well we privately worship. So our corporate worship, what happens here is ultimately just an overflow as to how, who, and when you've been worshiping throughout the week. But even the, the term worship is hard to talk about in church. Some other things that are hard to talk about, too. It's hard to talk about the Alabama Crimson Tide. I mean, there's just a part of me that's just like, feels like betrayal just to say it. Like, something is like spoiled inside of me, I'll just say it. I mean, I, I sat and watched a ball game last night, and I'm like, I never root for Alabama for obvious reasons. And yet, I, I'm watching this game, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? Like, it's just so hard and like I, I, you sit and endure it. But you know what I, I did see in that ball game last night? There was a lot of worship that was going on. There was over 100,000 people gathered, 100,000. And it was so loud that the commentators had to like raise their voices to go over it. I mean, it was that loud. They say on the, on the field of play, it's, it's actually kind of like deafening and, and it causes the, whoever, the opposite, whoever the opponent is to really have a hard time even be able to call a play. It's just so loud. And in that, there's, you know, there's cheering, woo, going crazy. And, you know, there's people jumping up and down and doing all that that you do at football games or sporting events. But there's all sorts of worship. There is. But yet, why is it that it's hard to talk about worship? I mean, we, we, some other things are, of course, hard to talk about. If you've ever crashed your dad's car, that's hard, right? Like you go in, you were like, dad. And you always preface it with, don't be mad at me, right? And you go in, you be like, I crashed the car. It's not that big of a dent. 
Well, let me go look at it. And you look, and the whole side of the car is gone, you know? Or like what started as a dent then went through the bumper into the back of the car, and now you can't even open the trunk, but it's, it's not that big of a deal. Things are hard to talk about. In life, things are hard to talk about. Sometimes, if I'm honest, sometimes it's hard to talk about things even in the course of a marriage, and the marriage should be the place where you open yourself up the very most. Sometimes things are hard to talk about. Sometimes things are hard to talk about because we've actually had some misunderstanding with things that we're supposed to talk about. So now as we talk about the theme of worship, and although it is, it is difficult because it can be vague, one of the reasons why it's vague is this, I believe. American Christianity has changed the meaning of worship, or changed the word worship to mean either a type of music, a certain part of the service, or, so a type of music, the music portion during our Sunday gathering, or the last one is this, just the Sunday service. But worship is so much more. This is only one small piece of the pie. And yet worship, because we have a genre of music that we call worship, it gets confusing, and yet we we find ourselves not talking about it, but yet we all worship. But I want us this morning to see, we're going to look at the life of Moses, just briefly, just this moment in his life, and we're going to see how well it is for us to both worship privately and how that worship in private then affects how we worship in public public or our corporate worship. But we have to chip away at this false understanding as to worship is. Even, even myself, I find myself using the word worship to mean a type of music or a certain part. And I always have to recalibrate my mind and say, no, 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 no. It's all worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It's what we do. It affects who we are and how we live. Richard Foster said this in his book, Celebration of Discipline. I would I recommend that you read it. It's a really, really good read. He said this, Worship is our response to the overtures or the invitation of a love from the heart of the Father. Wow. So so the, the wows in our life, every wow that we have with God, every time that we are amazed at the, the glory and the splendor and the majesty and the holiness of God, every time we have a wow when God shows up in a big way, every time we step out in faith and God meets us there, that we don't, we don't just walk by sight, but we, we, we walk by what? Faith. And every time we step out in faith and God meets us there and he shows us that his promises and his purposes to us for our for us are good. It comes from the heart of a loving father. And I love this because he says, worship is our response. So what we do, it's our response to the overtures, the invitation of love from the heart of the father. You see, I want this to be the the framework of which we build on. Uh, Because we can think worship is a bunch of different things and we can get confused so why are we not great worshipers of God? I mean, after all, I find myself in, in Luke 15 where it tells the, this, when the story is being told about the 99 and the one. If you've been in church for a while, you may know that. That Jesus left the 99 and he went out for the one. I don't know about you, but I'm that lonely one. Anyone else the lonely one this morning? And yet I, I look at the story of the prodigal son and I don't just find this, this vague story in the scriptures. I find my story. Because I still find myself, like the prodigal son, coming to my senses when it comes to certain things in my walk with God. And it said that the prodigal son had everything that the father, the, the farmer, father had a lot of things promised to him. And yet he wanted something just a little bit more. He wanted to worship some other things other than the father is what this the metaphor in this parable is conveying. And yet he leaves to seek something that he thinks better 
but he finds slop, and then he comes to his senses, and he comes back. But if you're familiar with that text, where is the father when the prodigal son comes down the road? He's running to him. That's the overture, the invitation of the love that comes from the father. And then I I find myself also in Luke 19.10, and this is what that scripture said, for the son of man came to seek and save that which was lost. Again, there's my lonely hand. I, I was the lost one, and he found me. I didn't find him. He found me. I was the, the lost one, and he left the 99. I believe that the answer to this question, are we not, why are we not great worshipers of God, if I'm really honest, is we find ourselves worshiping other things. And I have an incomplete list here, but there's some counterfeit options and obstacles in our way of worshiping God. I will say this slowly because I do know that some of you have fallen into these traps. And I really want you, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to seek the Spirit of God. And I want you to ask God, God, show me if one of these is a counterfeit for my worship. Because if you're living and you're worshiping something that's a counterfeit, it's not as good as it could be. And your life is not as good as it should be. So here's my incomplete list. Family. Is your family the center point of your life? If your family is the center point of your life, you're worshiping family. Family's good, but not to be worshiped. Some of us have fallen trapped to worshiping religious rules to think, well, I can know that I'm in because I followed these certain rules. Perhaps it's your kids where your life is just revolving around your kids. You're, you have anxiety around your kids. Your busyness is all around your kids. Your life revolves around your kids. What are my kids doing? What's he doing? What's she doing? What are they doing? Where, how can I help them? Kids are great. Kids are a blessing, but they're not to be worshipped. Maybe for you, it's money. And it's the pursuit of money. Like, I just, have, I just need a little bit more money. And you're worshipping money or the pursuit of what you think money will bring you. Possessions, maybe, to where you're, you're not content in Christ. You can't, you're, you're not worshiping him for the, the otherness that he is. Instead, it's just a matter of possessions. And as long as you have these things, you're happy. But if you don't have these things, your life falls apart. That means that you're worshiping things. Maybe it's a certain position, a position whether in your family, whether it's a position at work, and this, it's the center point of your life. And as long as I have these things, my life is complete. And then your life falls apart whenever you don't have that. It's because that's a counterfeit worship and not worthy to be worshipped at all. Or lastly, and I think all of these could be lumped into this, but self. And it's rooted in this self-dependence and selfishness. And the idea that that I am self-supporting. And many of us fall into this. We worship some version of self. So this is what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, woman at the well in John 4, 24. And this becomes our bottom line for today. God is spirit. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. And he must worship. We must worship in spirit and in truth. Our main passage this morning is going to come from Exodus in Exodus 34. But prior to getting to this passage, what I want to help you with is to give you a a broad context. And we're going to look at this passage and we're going to we're going to look at it close. But then we're going to step back at about 10,000 feet. And as we look back at 10,000 feet, I want you to see something that's very, very simple. 
And these two very simple principles are going to be the very things that inform our worship. And then I'm going to give you four, uh, kind of four rallying points around this passage and some others, and then two takeaways at the end. And it will be, uh, I think, will be very informative and help you with this idea of worship. And then for you also to ask yourself, what is it that I'm worshiping? Why does my worship seem to fall short? In Exodus 24, 1 and 2, this will be previous to our main passage, but this is what it says. Then he, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the mountain, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the leaders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, and Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. So this is an invitation for Moses and some others to enter the presence of God and worship. But Moses is the one who's going to go up most closely to God. So Moses was to go up on the mountain in the presence of God, and he was supposed to get, and he was going to get, some instructions for the Israelite community. These instructions would be the very thing that would define them as a community. This would be the Ten Commandments. This would be all of the other uh, rituals and practices that they had to do because they were to live as set-apart people. Newsflash, Christians are to also live as set-apart people. They're being sanctified day by day to, to look more like Jesus and less like the world. It looks more like we're worshiping Jesus instead of things of the world. This passage continues. In Exodus 24, 17, it says this, and this is amazing to me. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. So this is their vantage point. They're looking at Moses. Moses is at the top of the mountain, and they're at the base of the mountain. They're looking up, and they, all they can see is just like what looked like just this consuming fire. That's some amazing worship, is it not? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but if I was there, I think I would be in awe of God. I, I would be in awe of God, and, and this is what happens. The main passage that we're going to get to in Exodus 34, what happens in between what we just read and what we're going to read is this, that Moses had gone up on, on the mountain and he'd done all those things and God invited him to worship him on the mountain. And we know also that Joshua went part of the way up, although this passage doesn't say it, others do, that he went part of the way up, but Moses went and worshiped alone at the highest point on the mountain. And God invited him to do that. God invited him because Moses was going to bring something back for the community of faith. So his private worship was then informing his public worship. His private worship was informing his public worship. The problem is, when he starts coming back down the mountain, he hears a ruckus going on at the base of the mountain. And while he had this amazing worship experience alone in the presence of God on the mountain, they were having their own little worship experience at the base of the mountain. And Aaron... He was the number two guy. Aaron said it was okay. So they had, had built this, this false idol, and they were worshiping this idol, and there was a whole lot of partying going on around it. So Moses comes down off the mountain, and he's, he's shocked because although he had this great experience, he comes down to the base of the mountain, and he finds these people are already worshiping something else. But he gets frustrated. Some of you know what happens next. Throws down the Ten Commandments, and they break. Well, after a little scolding from God, God then invites Moses to go back up the mountain and do it again. And this is where we pick up the story. Exodus 34, verse 27. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. Let's pause there for a moment. Who thinks that was a miracle? Right? Anyone think that's a miracle? That's a miracle. I don't recommend you do that because you'll die, okay, apart from God. So this is an amazing worship experience that Moses is invited to. It's not just some, uh, some experience that he just goes up there and just sits and just communes with God. Instead, he's learning something about God. He's desperate for God. He's, he's desperate for God's provision, and that also informs his worship. I'll keep going. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands, he was, not a fa- he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the other Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant. Who thinks that's pretty cool? And they were afraid to come near him. But Moses, verse 31, but Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him. And he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands of the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out he told the, and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Again, if we're to break this down very practically, we see in verse 27, verse 27 and 28, this is Moses' private worship time. The private worship time then informs the public worship time. He spends time, now we're, we're stepping out, 10,000 foot view of this, so now his public worship time is impacted because of his private worship time, and it's the same thing that happens in the life of a church. How well we worship Monday through Saturday will then inform how well we worship on Sunday. Our worship on Sunday is not a time for us to just come and be filled up. We should be continually filled, and that should just be spilling over when we come into the community of faith. So if there's ever been a time where you've come into this place, and you just have just had not been with it, and your attitude has just not been what it should be, or you've been consumed with other things, what I want to just pose to you is this. You've been worshiping something else or tempted to worship something else other than what you ought to. Because when we gather together, this is the overflow of how well and what you've been worshiping all week long. Because worship is a lifestyle. I want to give you four ways that we can just kind of rally around before I give you the takeaways. First one is this. Understand that proper worship begins with God. Proper worship begins with God. To worship God means to ascribe the proper worth to God, to magnify Him and all of His attributes above everything else. Which means that there's an otherness to God. There's an unexplainability when it comes to God. This means when there's a walk with God, there's a walk with God that that will cause us to walk in faith and not by sight. There's going to be elements into your life. Listen to me, Christian. If that means if you have a walk with God and you've got everything figured out, then that means you're doing something wrong. 
Because there should be moments, defining moments in your life where you're like in awe of God. Like, God, wow, you showed up in a big way here. God, I didn't see, I didn't expect that. That came out of, out of left field. I don't even understand, God, what you're doing, but I'm so glad you're with me. That is an understanding that the proper worship begins with God is to magnify him and all his attributes above every other thing. Worship begins with God. It doesn't worship, it doesn't begin with us. I love the way some of these psalmists wrote it. And I'm gonna have the scriptures put up on the screen, just the sources. You can look them up later if you want to. But I just want the word to wash over you. I have a lot of scriptures. I want them to just wash over you. Because the word informs our worship. This is what it says in Psalm 8.1. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. There's an otherness to God, is there not? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling is what it says in Psalm 211. Psalm 717 says this, I give thanks to the Lord because of his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. Psalm 91 says, I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart and I will tell of all of your wonders. If you're kind of stuck in your Bible reading, and you, you may ask yourself, I want to be wowed by God. I would recommend that you start with the Psalms. Because there's just a wow, wow, wow that happens throughout all the psalmists. Whether it's a psalm of Asaph or a psalm of David or attributed to someone else, all of them have this wow, this otherness of God. And yet, what I, what I just find so satisfying is this. It also speaks into the depths of us. Because in the, in the Psalms and the psalmists, they conveyed their heart emotion. It wasn't some stale intellectual thing. They told you how they felt in response to God. So inviting. Because our proper worship begins with God. A couple other scriptures. Again, I want this to wash over you. The object of worship has been revealed. Romans 1.20 says this. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. So I take this to mean this, that ever since the beginning of creation, God has been shouting his otherness to us, saying, I'm worthy to be praised. I'm worthy of your adoration. I'm worthy of your worship. Also, Jesus himself is the object of our worship. John 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I've been a Christian for a long time, and I have not even began to scratch the surface as to how much Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. There's an otherness there. The second rallying point for this is not only does worship begin with God, worship is our response to God. It's our response to God. I'll take you back to Exodus 24, 1 and 2 to show you this. We read this just a moment ago. Then he, the Lord, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to worship the Lord, and the others must not come near. And the people may not come up with him. God invites Moses and Moses' response is coming into the presence of God on the mountain. This is what Jesus said 
to the Samaritan woman in John 4, verse 22 through 24. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers, the true worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So I want to break it down into this little phrase. Worship is head and heart. It's will and emotions, and it's spirit and truth. Worship is both head and heart. It's will and emotions, and it's spirit and in truth. When we respond to God in worship, there should be a response that is not just intellectual, but it's something that engages our heart. It engages our heart to the level that then we respond in obedience to Him. That's the will. In obedience to the truth. When we respond to God in worship, it's because He has given us, is what it says in Ezekiel 36, that He has given Christians a new heart and a new spirit. And he's taken away the old heart that was a seeker of self and a lover of self, but instead he's replaced it with the heart that loves God and that can worship God fully. And it's out of that heart then that our spirit is awakened, awakened to the truth, awakened into action, awakened by his love. But yet John Ortberg humbly admits something about his life and certainly admits something about mine. Perhaps it's yours some things that get in the way. He said, I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need worship because my natural ability is towards self-reliance and stubborn independence. This is why we need to be wowed by God because I believe that, I see, I believe that in my life there's some of this, but I believe it's evident in yours too. That if we're not wowed by God, we're gonna submit to the false worship of self. If we're not wowed by God, if we don't put ourselves in situations to where we have an awakening of our soul and worship to God, we will worship other things. And certainly high on the list is self-reliance or stubborn independence. Third rallying point for this talk is this. Worship is the foundation of everything we do as believers. Worship is the foundation of everything we do as believers. Jesus said this. When he was being tempted in the desert, most likely it was not just a desert. I've been to that place, and it's very mountainous. That when he's being tempted by Satan, this is one of the ways that Jesus responds. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, when we pursue godliness without worship, it's legalism. When we pursue godliness without worship, it's legalism. We see that evident with the Pharisees. Service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. So if you're just serving, 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 like Martha, but it says in that scripture that Mary chose a better thing, if you're familiar with that. She chose a better thing, and what did she choose? To just, she chose Jesus. She, she chose to, set, to sit at Jesus' feet in worship and adoration of the King of kings and Lord of lords. And yet... Martha was falling into something else because service as a substitute for worship is idolatry. And this one perhaps pertained to you as well. Mindless activity 
is the enemy of adoration. We can fall into just mindless traps where we stop believing that we're living on purpose for Jesus. We can stop believing that God has a purpose for us, that God has a mission for us, that God has a plan for your marriage or your singleness, that God has a plan for your kids. We can just fall into this mindless activity that's just numbing. And in that, in that, understand that's the enemy of adoration. That's the enemy of our worship. This is what it says in Proverbs 5, 6. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, and she knows it not. She's just mindlessly living her life. We can't worship God when we're just mindlessly living our life. Also, Psalm 143, verse 10 says this, Teach me to do your will. For you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Worship flows from the spirit and leads to godliness and service in our divine purpose. This, our worship of God, our, our times of adoration, our times of public worship and private worship then lead us to live lives where we look more like Jesus. Pursuing and training ourselves in godliness is what it says in 1 Timothy. That's what we need to do as Christians. We're training ourselves in godliness, but also it's for us, our service flows from our worship and also our divine purpose, the purpose of our life, the mission statement for our life. The going to make disciples is in response to the worship of God. The last rallying point for this talk is this. Worship affects the way that we live our lives. Worship affects the way that we live our lives. It means you're stewarding God's resources in a different way. That there's worship there. That you have these, these times of awe before God and you understand the otherness of God that you can't pursue selfish endeavors anymore, but instead you have to commit that to Jesus. It means if you're worshiping it and how it affects the way that we live our lives, that means that you're going to be living your life on mission, that means you're going to be sharing the good news audibly with people. Not just by paying for somebody's lunch and assuming that that's sending the gospel. That means conveying the gospel to them. Talking about the love of Jesus. Talking about the effects of sin. Talking about the hope that comes through the redemption of God's plan. It means also doing good in the world. That our worship of God then informs us to do good in the world. We don't do good in the world to then make God happy. That's not the way it works. We worship God and then and in a response to making disciples, those make those disciple, that disciple making then makes good happen in the world. The way we steward our life is directly connected to how we worship our God. The way that we steward our life is directly affected to how we worship our God. So I want to give you a, a practical Worship guide, if you will. If you would go to the right in your Bible. We talked about, go to the right into Matthew 6. We talked about, from a, a very tangible perspective, on what happened with Moses and how he had had this time of private worship. And then out of that overflow, his face was radiant. Remember, we read that together. His face was radiant, and that impacted the community's ability to worship. So it, it spilled over into that. And now what I want to help you is, in a very tangible and practical way, to bring this now, not from 10,000 foot, but to bring this at ground level. 
I want to show you how to be a better worshiper, both in spirit and in truth. And we're going to do it in a way that is, I believe, kind of unpredictable. Because oftentimes when we look at this passage, we only think of it in one way. But I want to break down this short passage, a passage that has greatly affected my life. I, I, in, in current day, I, I read this and I've, I meditate on this all the time. But this also awakens something in me, a spirit of worship, and it brings me back to the awe and wonder of God and the, the otherness of God. And it gets me outside of myself. In Matthew 6, this passage, often called the, the model prayer, and it certainly is great and valuable for that, certainly is, is a great way to pray. I just told you that I do. But now I also want you to see that it is, it's a great and practical, practical worship guide. Here's what it says. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven. We're going to go line by line through this. And I want to show you how every one of these, these lines, then, it gives us an opportunity to reflect back upon God in worship. Our Father in heaven. The only reason why we can worship God is because the Father sent the Son, the, the love of the Father sent the Son, and Jesus submitted himself to, unto death so that some could be saved. So our worship begins with the overture, the invitation of the Father's love. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name is the next line. Think of this as holy as your name. Maybe that's what your translation says. That's the otherness of God. That's the, wow. That's the God, I didn't see that coming. That's the God, I'm so glad that you showed up. That's the God that, that draws us to be more like him and less like our false self. This too is a trigger for our worship, our pure worshiping spirit and in truth. So our Father in heaven brings us to the Father's love and worship. Second, holy or hallowed be your name is to the otherness, the holiness of God in worship. The next line says, your kingdom come. This again, I, I, I'm bringing, just bring this to myself and I'll just speak this to myself and let you listen of just how great it is that we have a heavenly home that awaits us. That there's something that's better than what we're experiencing today. A part of the otherness of God. And God is worthy of our worship. That he has this promise for us. That there's a, a heavenly home, a destination where we can bask in the presence of God in a better and more full way than what Moses could. Think about that. Let that blow your mind for a minute. That we can be in the presence of God. And that's our heavenly home. Your kingdom come but also your will be done is the next line. That leads us, as we worship God, that leads us to submission and purpose. Your kingdom come, your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Our, our worship then affects the way we submit to God to God's authority, to his otherness, to all of his attributes, to his holiness, to his goodness, to his grace, to his justice, to his truth, to his mercy. And also leads us to one of our purposes here on earth. The next line says this in verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. There too is an opportunity for us to respond to God, respond to God's provision. 
Because apart from him, we could do no thing and we would have no thing. Our, our worship is a response there too to his wonderful provision. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We respond because we have been pardoned for our sin. We have received the pardon, the not guilty for our sin because of the shed blood of Jesus. This is what Christians possess, a pardon for their sins. Also, the last one, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That there too is an invitation of God to worship him because he is the one who promises deliverance from the evil one. All of these should trigger something in your spirit, in your soul, to wake you up to worship, break you out of the monotony of life, to wake you up to the otherness of God and respond in worship. Two takeaways are very simple. First takeaway this morning is this, find your mountain. Your mountain is going to be found in two places. And it's not just either or, it's both. Find your mountain, that means your private times of worship. If you're not engaging yourself in God's word, if you're not praying, if you're not in gospel community, you are already worshiping something else or someone else. Not God. Find your mountain. Moses responded to God's invitation. He went up to the mountain. He was changed. And out of that, he then helped other people to change. Our responsibility is to find our mountain. Find our mountain where, where we can go out and then we can, we can also find our Moses and our Joshua to help shape us. So we continue to live a life of worship because when we find our mountain, we will find a true heart of worship. The worship that Jesus said that we should have that is both worship in spirit and in truth. It's a worship that's both of our will and our emotions of head and heart. So we find our mountain. Our, our mountain is ultimately the place where we're going to work out all of, the other, all of the other elements of spiritual formation that we talk about here with regularity. All of these are mountain opportunities. Second takeaway is this. Let the word of God be your worship guide. There are a lot of substitutes. And they are counterfeits. Let the word of God be. Be your guide. When you find your mountain, you should do it as being informed by the Word of God. Because when, when we have these mountain experiences, these times where we can commune with God both privately and publicly, and we have the Word of God, we stay tethered to the God, the God of otherness, the God of purpose, the God who, who sends us, the God who loves us, the God who draws us. And the God who commends us when we're doing well. And he also informs us when we're not doing well. All of those are our response to the invitation of the Father's love. Let's pray together. Father, you are holy. And Father, I pray to you, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory. Amen.
Amen.